the Wednesday edition of Canuck Central, and that means overrated, underrated. Coming up a bit later on, Kevin Woodley's joining us, and Shane Malloy to talk prospects. It's Satyar Shaw with Bick Nazar, still in for our guy Dan Riccio, but it's also Canucks game day, so we always love being at the rink, and that's where the Kintech studio is at for this Wednesday edition of Canuck Central, and a lot to dig into today, and as always, keep getting your thoughts into our Dunbar Lumber Text Inbox. 650-650, and Bick, we kind of teased the discussion yesterday, and let's dive right into it, because I've been excited to talk about this. It's a bit geeky, a bit nerdy, but there's been a lot of discussion about Philip Hironik, who the Canucks have acquired from the Detroit Red Wings, who has one more year left on his contract, and then is an RFA, so that means a contract extension could be in the books very soon, if not this offseason, for the newest member of this organization, Bick, and... A lot of speculation about how how big that contract may be, and, and fans are wondering, especially after Vancouver gave up a first and a second round pick to acquire right. him, uh, will Alan Walsh, his agent, have Vancouver over a barrel and extract every single dollar possible, and is he going to get paid over $7 million per season potentially? And to figure out if that's actually possible or not, all you got to do is look and look into precedents and comparables. And you've done a lot of research into this topic, so I'm excited to see what you've uncovered. Well, just like always, and, and look, we did the same experiment with JT Miller, right? Like, what's the comp? There's the agent's comp, there's the team's comp, mm-hmm. and the truth is somewhere in the middle. But essentially, like, contracts are just precedents. Yes. That's all they are. Yeah. As much as we get to sit here and be like, this is what it means to the cap. It's a legal document, and all they are are just precedents. <laughs> so where does it come in? And, and you know, I, I've been seeing the inbox and since the trade was made. Everyone's like, well, now you got to go sign them to a $7 million deal. And, and it's just been this constant criticism mm-hmm. uh, coming into the inbox. And, you know, it just kind of got me thinking. I was like, why does everyone think $7 million? Who are the D-men that sign $7 million? And, and what style or, or D-men are getting $7 million? And you actually just take a look and – in the league right now, as far as players and, and contracts that start next season, mm-hmm. let's even make it a bit easier. Contracts that start next season. How many guys in the league do you think are making $7 million at defense? So w- my guess would be 30? It's 25. 25, okay. There's 32 teams, yeah. right? So they're not even a number one D-man that goes across all teams. So twenty, so $7 million is essentially number one D-man money. It's it's not elite D-man money, but it's number one D-man money just based on yeah. the reality. Are we suggesting Philip Ronick's there? That's the I don't thing, think right? he's a number one defenseman, no. I mean, as good as he's been. And I'm really excited about the player. I mean, hey, and I think, uh, okay, disclaimer for anybody listening, disclaimer. This discussion is in no way, shape, or form a detraction of Philip Hironik, the player, or a suggestion that he's a bad acquisition. All it's about is figuring out what type of argument does he truly have to get $7 million or more. And what you're outlining is $7 million is number one D-man money, just based on the numbers. It's very rare. I mean, 25 is not that rare, but it's a high threshold to cross for D-man across the league, starting next year. And, okay, so if it's not seven... But even start to peel that back, like what guys do get seven million? Uh, people can say, "Well, Mark Edward Vlasic got seven. Okay, Mark Edward Vlasic, like when he signed the deal, like we can talk about teams that have made mistakes. Yeah, 
the San Jose Sharks made a mistake. They bought at a peak of Mark Edward Vlasic. That's a legacy contract. Yeah. Like we can provide some context into, into what that deal. And that was years means. of being considered as the preeminent defensive PK defenseman in the and, league. They can provide a little bit of offense. As and well. how many times has the San Jose Sharks? Helped a guy on the second contract, like a Kevin LeBanc, right? Well, look at Tomas Hurdle's contract. A lot even. of guys yeah. sacrificed during those peak Thornton, Pavelski, Marlowe years just to make it up on the back end. But you go through it here. And I don't know if you just want me to list the guys. It's, yeah. it's Morgan Riley, Aaron Eckblad, Jaron Spurgeon, Quinn Hughes, Shea Weber. Like, Quinn Hughes makes 7.8. And, and I don't think any like of us ex- think that. Less uh, than a million? He's going to be a less than a million away from Quinn Hughes? No. And and I think that's the. That's the thing to keep in mind here. When we're talking, if he, and this is when we're talking about signing a contract this upcoming season. Yeah. As in, like, you can start negotiating. I mean, I would even season. stretch it if he wants to play it out to UFA status. Well, if he wants to get to UFA, the, the thing that happens when you're UFA is it becomes a free market. And that just becomes, hey, somebody has a need, somebody is desperate mm-hmm. enough, and that's where it just gets blown out of the water, right? Because you have one RFA year you're buying, it becomes somewhat different in the, in the equation. Once you hit the free market, it kind of becomes the Wild West. You never know what could eventually but happen. But even if, if they play this out, right, and he plays the 82 games next year, even if his leverage point of, hey, I'm an RFA, one year away from UFA, what's your big money deal? I still don't know if I see seven. I'm sure there's a desire from the Ronit camp to get seven. So what would he have to do to get $7 million? Let's say the Canucks and him table negotiations and they start talking when he's RFA. So that's coming up in the summer of 2024. What would he have to do this, Next upcoming, se- this upcoming season to set himself up to get that type of contract potentially from the Canucks? You'd essentially need like 60 points. I think you need... Okay, so remove the points for a moment, and I think you're right. There has to be a big point production. There also has to be this massive impact defensively and on the PK. Yeah, he would have to become, with Quinn Hughes, probably the preeminent pair, like top five pair in the league. He'd, he'd have to be the equivalent. He'd have to be the number two. Like, he have to be a true number two defenseman that's playing next to Quinn Hughes. Yeah. And here's the thing. To prevent that, the Canucks could just not play him with Quinn Hughes next year. Well, yeah. and Which, I mean. Like I know we talked about it, it would be exciting, but we've also said to, for what's best for the team is probably to be on two separate pairs. Well, unless you find more defensemen. Sure. Which is obviously the harder part of the equation. But what's what's the most likely scenario? Hughes and Ronick on different pairs next year. I think that I think that's the most likely scenario because you're unlikely to find two defensemen you can play together in so, your top so four. So suddenly this $49 million total money contract that might come down the chute it's a lot tougher when you're not playing the prime minutes. And by also the way, not playing on the first unit power play. That's the thing. You're not going to be playing on the first power play. Well, and, and if you are if you are Philip Hironik, however, and I see people texting, and it's a good point. They're like, hey, this organization g- you know, gave money to, to Tyler Myers, and they have OEL making $8 million. You know, hang those on, are precedents. Hang on. They did not give OEL $8 million. And that's true. It doesn't matter. And also, when OEL signed that contract for $8 million, we're talking about somebody who had been nominated for a Norris. We're talking about somebody who had been a perennial all-star year after year 50-point defenseman. OEL right now is a shell of his former self. He was considered one of the top defensemen in the entire National Hockey League at one point. Yes, and as far as... All of Reckman Larson goes in general, too. Like, at one stage in his career, he was making five and change. Like, his second contract was five and change. And the weird thing is about D-men contracts, like, Philip Ronick does find himself in a unique spot. There's not a lot of guys that sign contracts at ages 25 and 26. No, and usually they've been somewhat of a bridge deal. And, I mean, uh, even Devon Taves 
he's a comparable, but he's not a clean comparable, right? Because he's a player who got traded in his final. He was he was an RFA, and he had not yet really developed into the player. Like he hadn't played as many games as Ronick had in the NHL yeah. at that point. But a late bloomer came over a bit later on, so it's not a clean comparable in terms of the money. But I think any way you slice it, though. Right now, I don't think he can really demand seven million from Vancouver. And if he wants seven million, he's gonna have to bet on himself for at least one more year. But if you bet on yourself, you also have to look at how smart is that for me to bet on something when I'm not on the first unit power play. And again, I'll finish this list here of guys that are they're essentially all first power play guys. Quinn Hughes, Shea Weber, Hedman, Shabbat, Carlson, Burns. Truba's an outlier, but you also remember that trade was engineered and we'll get to that point of the leverage that Acquiring team yeah. loses by acquiring a guy. Truba, uh, Ekwin Larson, Heiskanen, Sergachev, Petrangelo, Hamilton, Makar, Yossi, Nurse, McAvoy, Jones, Fox, Rensky, Dowdy, Carlson. All of them, except for Nurse and Truba, are basically power play one guys. And that, yeah. that's just not a reality that exists here. Well, no, exactly. And, you know, I see Raymond saying, would the Canucks trade a first and a second if they didn't think he was a $7 million D-man? Don't get that. Don't think about the money as necessarily being an indication of what he truly is. It's more about how is he going to be able to truly demand that money given the precedent and also his level of potential production being on the second unit power play. I believe he's a better player than some of these guys that we may have mentioned. Right? I, like, I agree. Classic. Yeah. Right? He can be better than... Ivan Provorov, yeah. right? Like we talk about players outperforming their contracts. He can outperform whatever his next contract is, or Absolutely. live up. Even if he managed to get something, he can live up to it. But how are you demanding the contract? Like when you come to the table, you say, "Hey, we want seven point five, or we're going to arbitration." And arbitrator's going to look at it and say, "Where are you getting this number from?" That's what's going to happen. And I, I just don't see the, the the precedent. I think there's way more precedence than the five range. Than the seven range. Well, this is why we'll get to it in a second. But this is why when you look at the comparables, also the pure point per game may not be the, the truest indicator because Philip Peronic actually is at point five one one point per game already in his National Hockey League career. That's better than Darnell Nurse for mm-hmm. his career. We know how big a contract he got, but it's also about your overall impact. And this is the first year Peronic's career he's played at a good impact defensively. And also been a net positive contributor on the PK, right? And some of those, you know, stats sometimes are harder to argue, but the point production in ARP is what matters more than anything, and that's his best indicator. He can just point to the fact that his point per game mm-hmm. is better than the number of players. So at least on a one or two year ARP discussion, he has a good argument. But in terms of signing a long term deal with Vancouver, he has one option bet on himself which could limit his overall potential point production, which could also indicate how much he's gonna get paid. Or do you bridge something today? And here's where it gets interesting. And this is why the acquisition could be really tantalizing if they hit on his potential and they get the contract right this offseason. Because the contract where you meet in the middle, you mentioned five range. His camp's probably seven range. We're talking a contract potentially with a six for term. And if he does become the player he's shown he's, he's able to be, or the Canucks think he is, then that's how you get a value contract long-term. What was fascinating about Colorado acquiring Devontae's is not just that they got a guy on a cut rate as far as cost of acquisition, a couple of second-round picks. They also paid him before they ever paired him with Kale McCarr. Imagine if they had done this thing, one-year deal, McCarr and Taze go together, and they look phenomenal, and then the contract Devontae's demands is so much higher than the four-year uh, and... 
$16.4 million he wound up getting. 4.1 AAV. If, if they had played with Makar beforehand, it's a different conversation. But they made the bet on the player to acquire him, and then they made the bet on the contract as well. Different circumstances, as you said, because Ronick has played more games. But if, if the Vancouver Canucks wanted to be aggressive, and that's why I asked that question to Earth yesterday, what's the likelihood both guys sign a contract this summer? If the Canucks wanted to be aggressive about this and make a bet... You go approach this and say, hey, the, the money you can probably earn and command right now is maybe a $5 million deal. And if you want to wait for this payoff in two years, and I think it was telling that Patrick Alvin said we have two years of control. When everyone's shouting, hey, there's only one year left on the deal, I think it's telling that he said two years of control because that's what they have. They have the contract ends another year of uh, RFA status. Come to this summer and say, we'll make a bet on you. Here's $36 million. Six by six, which I know is a scary uh, <laughs> term and number in, in this city. <laughs> Makes a few fans shudder. But I just wonder if, if six by six is the type of deal that this summer could get it done. You don't need to bet on yourself, and it's enough money. $36 million is a ton. It's almost tripling his uh, his current contract uh, overall value. It's about 13 some million dollars, $13.2 million to $36 million would be more than double, almost triple that total money, right? There's a, I think there's a deal to be made between 35 to 40 million on a six or seven year deal, which would have his AAV in the six number somewhere. And talked earlier about Jacob Truba and a guy who got traded, and how that creates some leverage for you. Sure, you can eke out a bit more money, and the Rangers were willing to pay for that. Another guy that strikes me as this is Justin Falk. Got traded to St. Louis, signed a deal on that same day. And sadly, signed a seven-year, $6.5 million deal at age 27. Again, some of these guys that sign big deals are maybe a bit older. Like yeah. Darnell Nurse, we're talking. Like Darnell Nurse, in the age range of Philip Peronik, was the deal he signed was a two-year, $5.6 million deal. There you go, right? And, and having the RFA control does also matter, right? So I think it's interesting when you look at the numbers. The only way Vancouver ends up paying a huge contract is if people are right in thinking Vancouver's A, desperate, and B, they'd have zero leverage with the agent. But they have two years to wait this out. Well, that's that's where it comes down, because even if he gets arbitration on a one-year deal, it's unlikely his number's going to grow to a seven anyways. You're talking about that RFA year at best being somewhere in the six, six and a half range. And I'm sure his agent understands all this stuff. So that's why I think if, if Vancouver should starts any negotiation this upcoming year where the total money is north of $30 million, I think there's a discussion to be had, right? And I'm not as certain he's going to get that $7 million plus. But just because he doesn't get $7 yeah. million plus, I don't think means he's not a potentially $7 million or more player. It's more about do you make the bet today before he becomes that, and then you have him at a nice number. Or you get it because of the circumstance, the way he's played out. Because if he plays with Hughes, even if he's not on the first power play unit, there's a chance he's going to get close to 50 points. And if he gets close to 50 points next year, and he's good defensively, yeah. good on the PK, he's going to have a really good case. But traditionally, you'd look at a player like this, and he, he averages about one point per 60 minutes of five on a five play. And you mentioned Darnell Nurse. Like, Darnell Nurses are in the same range, one point per 60 at five on five. The PP usage has been different. That's why Ronick has outproduced him per game. But five on five, if Philip Ronick comes in and is going to put up about 25 points, five on five, how is he going to make up the gap to try to get to 50 if he's not on the first power play unit? That's the thing I look at and say, 
where's the rest of it going to come from? And if they come to this summer and say, hey, 35, 36, somewhere in that range that you were talking about, it's hard to say no to because it would secure your future. And the funny thing about Demon, and he kind of did this too because he signed a three-year deal, Demon either get that second contract, kind of extends them through, or it's that free agent contract, which you saw with Petrangelo, obviously Nurse, and some other guys who had a big summer, Seth Jones. Like, it's... You know they're sniffing out a long-term deal now, if possible. That's just the way you set it up. When you do a bridge deal, yeah. the next deal you're looking for. But he's is already a had his deal. bridge, right? Exactly. He wants a long-term deal. So if you approach him now with some certainty, I think there's a chance you can get that number pretty good. But it goes back to also the other thing: what's the precedent of Rutherford slash Alvin? And Alvin wasn't the GM, but Rutherford was when they went out and got Justin Schultz. Yeah, there was and they a, bet on him. Are they are they looking at slow playing this potentially? So they traded for Justin Schultz, the third-round pick, at the deadline. And come the summer, they signed him uh, to a deal for a one-year deal. And he went on to have a Norris-level year. He got 10th place consideration for the Norris. Mm -hmm. And then at age 27, he signed a three-year, $16.5 million deal. 15.5. So are they a team, are they a group that's willing to say, if you don't want to say yes now, okay, go ahead, play it out. We are comfortable playing it out. And I go back to the point of why you said two years of control, even though we all know it's only one year left of the contract. And it's a thing that we've seen from them time and time again. How comfortable are they absorbing pressure situations? Because they seem very comfortable of taking on a Bruce Boudreaux scenario, taking on a Horvat scenario, and does a Horonic scenario develop where they also, like, if you want to play it out, okay, let's play it out. Well, And, and that's what I think where, e let's say, if people are right in saying, you know, uh, their leverage is bad and they think Alan Walsh has the advantage here, you wait a year. Because if next year he plays, they're playing on different pairs. He's not on the it's, first it's unit. It's still two full years. But he gets through next year and he has, let's say, Philip Peronik next season. This is not into saying he's a bad player or had a bad year, but he's not on the first unit power play. They control his usage. They have to split up the D pairs because they can't have him, Hughes, him and Hughes together because they don't have enough D men to make up for that fact. If they end up doing that and he ends up getting 37 points even, which is a great season, he could be fantastic, he's not going to be able to demand 7 plus million. Because even Mackenzie Weger was up for a Norris at one point, and he had over 40 points and on pace over 50 points on a season. you, you got to do that on your year leading into, leading into a contract, right? So I just don't think they're going to be taken advantage of right now with that contract because they have two years of control. And that's why you kind of meet in the middle, right? Are you willing to pay a premium to make a bet? And this, you know, Phil and Burnaby texting, and I would be feel very uncomfortable to sign Hronik without a good sample size of games played in a Canucks uniform. I vote until wait to next year, too many ifs. Absolutely, Fair. right? Yeah. But that's why, you know, you kind of try to make bets. It's about ifs, right? Because if you make the value, you sign a guy to a $6 million deal, and to the Raymond's text earlier, what if he becomes a $7 million player? Well, you got it in before. Well, and, that, and that's where it, what it comes down to, ultimately, right? Like, you make the deal now if you can. If you're willing to bet on him being that difference maker down the road. And if you and here's the ultimate thing. Let's say he shoves it down all our throats and regardless of being on the second unit and being on the second D pair, he just goes goes ham and puts up over 40 points. Then power to him. Then, then you know what he shows? Mm -hmm. Then maybe he shows he's a true number one defenseman. And if that's the case, then you're happily paying 7 million plus. There's there's a couple other D-men I want to point out here. We're very good D-men, yeah. but didn't play on power play one and sign deals at different times, at different stages in their career. Because, you know, Rorick's in this middle ground, right? So there's three guys. Mackenzie Weger in Florida. 
Ekblad's yeah. there. They had plenty of guys. He signed this deal in Calgary at age 29, kicks in at age 30. So much different from the age range of Philip Ronick. Ryan Ellis, when he was in Nashville, signed a deal at age 28, didn't come, kick in until age 29, signed an eight-year deal. Same with Uyghur. So Philip Ronick, if he goes all the way to UFA, he's going to be age 27, yes. the contract kicks in at 27. So what's a younger version of that deal? At age 24... Josh Morris, he signed a deal that kicked in at age 25, eight-year deal. All three deals were identical. Eight years, $50 million, 6.25. 6.25. None of those guys at the time of signing were playing power play one minute. Yeah. That's the precedent. And it's a lot of money. $50 million is a lot of money, but on the cap, 6.25, right? Yeah. And Curtis Olin says, where is this money coming from either way? we're ta- Next year is at 4.4. That's after, locked in. After next season, the Canucks are in, are in cap hell right now, in cap trouble right now. It's, it's going to loosen up. You still have OEL on the books, and you got to pay Elias Patterson. But in two years' time, the Canucks have about like $36 million in cap space. I mean, there's a lot of cap space coming. I mean, Myers is going to be off the books. A number of players, Tanner Pearson is going to be off the books. A number of players are going to be off the books after next season. And then not to mention if you are able to make a trade and move out a Garland and, or whomever else from your forward group. And we're talking about that contract kicking in the year afterwards. So there is money to get that deal done. And when you look at the precedents, you just mentioned those contracts. And those are, like, really good players who proved to be excellent top-pairing defensemen coming in at 6.25 because they're not playing on the first unit power play. And if Veronik's here, not playing on the first unit power play, that's more likely going to be the range he's going to find himself in. Yeah, this text in, don't want to create another Jonathan Huberto situation. But that's also playing it at a premium, and that's yeah. why I'm pushing back on this $7 million thing that – you know, seven and high sevens is paying the premium. And just just look at the cap hit number. Seven million next year on next year's potential $83.5 million cap is over 8% of your cap. That number to find guys that make that much money is just, just doesn't exist. No, it, 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 it's you've got to be the true stud style D-man. And until like, Philip Peronik proves that he's going to be up for Norris. Trouba was kind of the outlier to some extent, extent, um, but he was considered already like great reputation, defensive, physical, and a, a bit of a unicorn and, and the type of player that he was. But there are outliers, but it just kind of shows you how unlikely that is. Cam uh, Fowler at the time of signing is really the only other guy that you point to and saying, hey, he got a deal that was over 8.3% of the cap. And you know what that number came out to? $6.5 million. 6.5. There you go. Right? And at the time of signing. Yeah. And he it, signed it at age 26. At. Yeah. And and here's, like, I, I see uh, Marcus and Gibson say, Ronick's term should match Quinn's. Our contract should expire at the same time so we can pivot if need be. I, I don't I don't worry about that as much because if you're right about Ronick anyways and you sign him even to an eight-year deal, he's going to be 35 when that expires. Mm-hmm. That's not a big deal. Like, it, sure. For, for a player who's actually, like, you're going to be able to move that player if you wanted to at that point. Or he, he'll be a guy who has value in some states. So I don't worry about that if you get the AAV down. You also need to get the AAV down if you want to take advantage of the next few years with these players. Because mm-hmm. if you don't and you're playing, paying guys higher AAVs for the shorter term, then are you really maximizing the window? you got to give somewhere. I mean, winning's not going to be easy. This team hasn't done much of it. And they're, they're sacrificing quite a bit of draft capital to do it now and expedite this process. But it's going to cost you something, and it's, it's about trying to get ahead of it and bringing the cost down to some degree so you can fit more players into your salary cap structure. But Would Nate Schmidt be the, the type of contract? Again, signs at age 27. 5.95 over 6? Yeah. Now that's a little bit lower, but again, $35.7 million. I think that's the range. I think 35 to $40 million 
And is the range for this offseason? If everything goes well for him, he wants to sign an eight-year deal after next year, you're talking about $50 million, mm-hmm. 6.25, right? That's kind of the range you're looking at, I think, with a Philip Perona contract. But uh, that was, I mean, I know it's a bit nerdy getting into the numbers, but I thought it, in terms of where all the discussion is about his term, and we'll see what he ultimately gets paid, mm-hmm. but I think this is the most realistic range about what to expect from Philip Peronik's contract in Vancouver if they negotiate this summer or have to wait for a year from this point I, I think the bet to make is try to get it this summer and just say, hey, you're six and change or six. And we're gonna make a bet. You you get your security, so you don't have to worry about that. Thirty six million is a ton of money uh, for a guy who, as you put it, uh, how much has he earned so far? Like twelve million dollars. He's he's Nine earned. He's, he's gonna he's gonna have earned about thirteen million, about fifteen million when this contract's over. In total, then the, the term of his deal is so over. So he'll nearly triple his career earnings. Yeah, with the next contract. That's hard to say no to. You know, and that's how you also have to look at it. All right, a lot of great uh, conversation and discussion in our text inbox. Dunbar Lumber 650, 650. We'll try to hit more uh, as the show goes on. Kevin Woodley's next right here on Canuck Central. Back in on Canuck Central, coming to you live from the Kintech studio on the road at Rogers Arena. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. It's Satyar Shah with Bik Nazar and for Dan Richo here on Sportsnet 650. We are going to be joined by... Kevin Woodley coming up in just a moment's time, but we had a good discussion in the first segment about Philip Peronik's future contract and a lot of reaction on our text inbox before we get to Woodley Beck. Yeah, a couple of things. One, Bo texts in, would Neil Pionk be a good comp? For sure, but Neil Pionk didn't sign a long-term deal. He signed a four-year deal at 5.87. So, look, if, if age pro- profile makes sense, but if, I can't imagine the Ronick camp wants four-year deal. Nope. Uh, and it was a deal that kicked in right away, obviously. And another unsigned text, they'll be forced to overpay based on the assets they gave up. Ronick Camp knows that the ball is in their court, and we talked about that with Truba and Justin Falk. Those teams acquired him and had to give up big money. They also acquired him as RFAs, and this is why we talked about Canucks also control his usage for another year. So, yeah, okay, ball's in your court. Enjoy not playing with Quinn Hughes. Enjoy not having power play one. We can control that version of it. So the ball might be in court, but unless you want to play ball, you don't really get to stand on the court. Well, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be fascinating to see how it goes. And uh, we'll discuss that more, and we'll take more of your text messages. But it is time to get to our good friend, the goalie expert in Goal Magazine, NHL.com, frequent guest here on Sportsnet 650, our friend Kevin Woodley. Woodley, what's happening, man? How's your Wednesday? Have you decompressed after the trade deadline a bit now, too? Uh, Yeah, I think so. I think so. Although, I mean, holy smokes, man. <laughs> Philip Peronik isn't even here, and we're already stressing over his next contract. Uh, you know I, how it goes. I know that's the nature of the Beast Boys. I understand completely, but, man, I yeah, that one's got me. I'm a little chuckling on that one. <laughs> <laughs> got to prepare for the rain tomorrow, man. Got to be ready for it. You know, Noah I, built the ark before the today, rain. boys. It's sunny. Yeah, and that's Noah built the ark before the rain, not when the rain came down. So you work when it's sunny. <laughs> You guys are my Noah. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. So, which goalies would you want on the arc? Um, and then we'll, we'll get to we'll get to that a, a bit later on. But hey, listen, listen. That's a tandem question. It's two by two, is it not? Right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, is there a better tandem than the Boston one? Ooh, no. There is not a better right. tandem. 
than the Boston one, but there are a couple that up there that are right up there, Sat. And just give me one second, because <clears throat> that went down the wrong way. Oh, um, yeah. bless you. But uh, so it happens when you try and sneak in early dinner before I hit the hit. Um, <laughs> honestly, the Islanders, Sorokin and Varlamov, like. You know, it's interesting, uh, obviously a bit of a moot point now, but amid all the talk about the Canucks and Jari and what might they do if they move Demko, uh, Semyon Varlamov would have been my pick ahead of Tristan Jari on the free agency market that, uh, this summer, like 10 times out of 10. Uh, he's been underrated real good alongside Ilya Sorokin. Um, and another tandem that I don't think enough people talk about, how about Marc-Andre Fleury since sort of mid-December has been really good uh, and nobody notices because Philip Gustafson on this season has the best adjusted save percentage, better than even Linus Ulmark. Kind of just surpassed him this past week with uh, a couple more brilliant performances. So it's funny, like, in an, at a time when I felt like we started the season talking about, you know, how many truly elite goalies are there, and is the number of dwindling, and is the quality of goaltending taking a step back, man, like, the rich getting richer. There are a lot of teams that have two really good, high-quality options right now, and... Uh, it's going to make for some fascinating discussions once we get to playoff time, because how do you manage that? Um, could we see tandems? Could we see some back and forth this playoff? I, I keep trying to speak it into existence every year, and I feel like this might be the best chance of it ever happening. Uh, let's talk here locally, though, uh, with Thatcher Demko obviously making his return, a handful of games here. And I, I know Rick talking earlier today, talking about usage for Thatcher Demko and saying uh, we don't want to play a more than four and five, and so you kind of – knock that number down, say three in a row then, I guess. And that could work out to like 14 more games here, Woodley. Yeah, and uh, I mean, if that's what it is, that's what it is. I, um, I didn't do the math based on that, but we saw them come back. I was a little surprised three in a row out of the gate. Um, but he managed it, even with the early start against Toronto, with a 4 o'clock mm-hmm. start, and looked good doing it. Uh, little Knocked a little rust off against Dallas and has been sort of trending upwards ever since. And you know, if that's the plan, three out of every four, like, I, I'm not surprised. I said when he came back, if he stayed healthy, that I felt like they were going to ride him. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if that's sort of the pace. It's really important for him to go into the summer. The first thing I said was in, it was important for him to go in the summer trusting his body mm-hmm. and knowing that it's not going to break down and knowing that he can get into these contorted um, desperation positions as much as as a goaltender the whole um, end game is to not do it too often. There are times you need to, and you know, behind this team, especially earlier this season, a lot. Um, you got to be able to trust your body to do that. That was step one. Knowing going into the summer, knowing that physically he could still do that on a you know on a one game or two game basis, and then the next step is you know managing his body, managing his rest, and can I? Because being a number one isn't just a matter. Of, hey, I trust my body. It's can I do this on a night-in, night-out basis? Now, he's made some changes to the way he's training. You've heard him talk about words we haven't heard from him before, biomechanics, um, changing the way he approaches things uh, physiologically uh, during these three months off. So, um, you know, continuing to build faith in that change in process for him, not just on a, you know, uh, every couple nights, a couple of starts, I feel good, I know I can do this again, but I can do this in a night-in, night-out basis and not have those aches and pains come back to the point where they're problematic. I, I know nobody wants to hear that. I know, you know, Tank Nation wants to see him shut down. Um, but getting back was just part of this. Getting back to playing regularly and feeling good physically uh, all bodes well and is all important steps for him even into next season. 
we, we talked to you a lot about, you know, adjusted save percentage and all the things that a goalie stats might look like. But you also cite great uh, team stats for the environment that gets created. Since Rick Tockett has taken over, outside of the traditional things that we look at, you know, shots against and high danger chances, what are the, some of the numbers that ClearSight has shown how Vancouver's played since Rick Tockett has come in? Uh, better and markedly. Um, you know, I'll just I'll just give you the generic expected goals against. Uh, overall, they were 28th uh, before the coaching change. Right now, they're 12th. This is five on five. Uh, high danger chances, which are the ones that matter the most. Um, you know, I mean, low danger chances become a problem when your goalies can't stop anything, but for the most part, those are the ones they're expected to stop. So I look mostly at the high danger here. 28th before the coaching change, 12th since. Rush is a big one. 32nd, dead last, with a bullet, exclamation point. Like, when you're that bad, and I've made this point a couple of times this year, they were bottom third, they are like 23rd, 24th last year. The gap is not just eight spots, it's almost exponential when you talk about the quality they were giving up early. 32nd, now up to 18th. Defensive zone from 27th to 20th, and the PK expected goals against has gone from 24th to 8th best in the National Hockey League. Um, breaking it down further, you know, What's Rick talked about a lot, guts of the ice, right? So how did that manifest itself? He talked about, about the goalie's predictable environment and only having to play one half of the ice. So what do you need to eliminate? You need to eliminate the seams. You need to eliminate slot line plays, as they measure on clear side analytics. Plays that cross the middle of the ice below the top of the circle, whether a pass or a carry, and force the goalie to sort of change sides before a quick shot. Dead last in the NHL. Before the coaching change, they are 11th in the NHL right now. Screens, talked a lot about that going back to the start of the season and even into uh, the preseason. The, their inability to sort of manage and move screens, but also create their own screens, all of which are measured by ClearSight, defensive screens, um, defensive players getting in the way of their own goalie's eyes. These are all things that are accounted for. Before the coaching change, guys, 27th in the NHL. Right now, since Rick Tocca took over, four taking away the guts of the ice, both in terms of lateral passes and in terms of doing a better job protecting the house and giving goalies clear sight lines. All of those boxes checked, significantly improved. Broken plays, another one. These are pucks that go off legs, sticks, bodies in front of the net <clears throat> and then tear them either direction. They're, they're some of the, you know, they're, they're hard to create because it's essentially chaos um, and they're the hardest to manage as a goalie because unlike a rebound, which at least you felt the puck hit you, or in the case of a low shot, you actually have a degree of control over where it's going. A broken play never gets to you. Chances are it hits a leg. You don't even see it hit a leg. Again, this is about protecting the house. We talked about this in the preseason. Very poor in front of their own net. 31st before the coaching change. Fifth since. Slot area shots. Just shots from inside the slot area. 32nd before the coaching change. Third best in the NHL since. Now listen. Some of this has to do with opponents, strength of schedule. All those things matter. And you have to do it again at the start of next season. All those caveats exist. But at the end of the day, those numbers I just threw at you represent a significant improvement in the defensive environment in most of the key statistics. And they sort of correlate to the messaging and wording that we've heard from Rick Tockett, guts of the ice, protect the house, like mm -hmm. those types of things. We can measure these things. We can measure screens. We can measure broken plays. And are you tying up sticks so the, the broken play doesn't result in a quality scoring chance when it bounces to the left of your goaltender? Like all those things are tangible and measurable, and all those things have been better since Rick Talkett took over. 
Well, and, you know, you, you nail it. I mean, we have to see this again next season, and, and fans have been screaming now for, for weeks that we've seen this the last couple of years, a team play better down the stretch, and it all falls apart next season. But there's Absolutely. a key difference. But there is a key difference here, right? Even last year, at the end of the year, we were talking about this and projecting to this season, and, and you kept saying, despite the fact the Canucks were winning more games, the environment wasn't considerably better. They were creating a bit more. They were still giving some stuff up, but it was still not exactly clean hockey. So at no point over the last two years when they played better, Kevin, did they play the way they're playing right now. So I guess that would be the, only, that would be the, the key potential difference, right, for you to think, okay, this could actually translate to next year. Yeah, they're getting better goaltending, but this isn't driven by Vesna caliber goaltending. Like, these are right. the underlying numbers, and they're opposite of what they were before. Like, all the things that I pointed to, even when they were winning with Boudreaux, as, you know, hey, this is a lot of Thatcher Demko, um, doesn't, isn't necessarily the case since Rick Tockett took over. So you're right. Again, proof will be in the pudding, and I understand the angst of the fans, 100%, because I've, I've lived it, and I've, been, I've talked about it, like, these late season bumps are like it's it's gotten so predictably painful, and then nothing at the start of next the next year. And you know it's funny. I was talking with somebody today, and you know I, I'd mentioned this earlier in the season, like you know the whole Boudreaux thing and and the way it all went down, and it felt like they were cutting them off the knees of some of the public comments. And one of the things I said earlier was, you know, especially and it's easy to say now because it's working but like if you had the courage of your convictions and actually made the coaching change earlier mm-hmm. you know maybe this season wouldn't have been as lost as it was and then i thought about it like i don't know that if you had brought talking in at the beginning of the year with all this messaging do you think the players would have been ready to listen to it or they would have been sitting there thinking well we won the other way under boudreaux like we had that success mm-hmm. like i almost feel like they needed to fail to some extent playing that way to see that it was unsustainable, to have it proven to them so that when a voice like Rick's comes in, um, there's more willingness to listen and more willingness to, um, you know, uh, execute the that he wants um, because like, like if they haven't figured out the other way, it doesn't work by now, they never will. Right. And so you're getting a little bit more of that buy-in. And so, you know, maybe it, it took the failure of the way they used to play, um, to finally sort of register that, you know, as a team, not just individual, individuals, but everyone, you, you need to be better in these areas. Like, you just, fire wagon hockey doesn't work. Um, and as much as the playoffs are something that, you know, they, they just want to, we just want to get to in this market again, mm-hmm. um, it really doesn't work once you get there. Like, like, nothing they did last year, even if the run had been successful, nothing about it felt like it would translate into playoff hockey. And this feels, not that I'm saying they're going to make it, but this feels like if they did, it would at least have a chance of having success because there is so much improved structure. And again, let's see if it can be sustained at the start of the year when everybody's going 100 miles an hour um, and there are no easy outs and there are no teams that are going through the motions. And frankly, there aren't teams overlooking you, like just like they did last season. So this same management group talked about you know, some of their wins being on the backs of teams overlooking them late last season. So I hope they don't fall in love too much with the wins that are coming now. And yet the underlying numbers, the process does seem to be better and should be encouraging long term. 
Well, some of the things were just, I mean, we're talking about NHL players. I, I, I'm sure they know how to make line changes and where to put their sticks, right? I mean, these are things we were talking about. Obviously, they know how to do it. It's more about reinforcing those habits like you kind of mentioned. But wrapping up the, the, the Canucks angle here, Arthur Silovs was recalled to play a game um, here the other night. What did you make of, of all that and, and the progress the young kid is making? I mean, like, it's funny, my column for NHL.com, uh, the unmasked goalie column this week, is about the importance of these late-season call-ups. And, you know, whether it's Thatcher Demko in 2018, I think Stuart Skinner is probably the best example I have. He got his NHL debut. It wasn't quite late-season, but it was, like, with an injury replacement mid-season. Gave up five. I think it was to Ottawa, but they won eight to five. Walked in the locker room, looked at the goalie coach, and, and basically, all right, I won my first NHL game. Like, congratulations, way to go. First NHL start, first NHL win in your hometown. And the next sentence was, holy crap, do we have work to do. And so these opportunities um, are are important for young goaltenders. And I think what's impressive is we've seen Arturs take steps even from the first start till now. Um, he's benefited from having more starts to sort of be like, okay, this is what it's like. This is what I need to do and sort of get an opportunity to put it in motion. To me, the interesting thing was, and I'm not suggesting that the other night was anything other than Colin Delia being legitimately sick and not being able to play and taking advantage of the farm team being, you know, uh, in the backyard down the street in Abbotsford. But it's also uh, a model for how this could look, whether it's next year or the year after, depending on how they want to sort of roll out their depth chart you know, I've talked again, this is something that Ian Clark did with Eunice Corpusalo in Columbus. It's something that Nashville did with UC Soros um, early in his career. Use your farm team as an opportunity to make sure your, your backup still gets games in the American Hockey League because Love still needs to play. But there might be an opportunity to do that and still have him come up here when needed to get starts. Like you could have, you could have had him in Abbotsford over the weekend playing games um, well, well, Demko starts against the Leafs and just had somebody else on the bench as a backup and then airlifted him in to start on Tuesday night. And then Demko's going the next three. He's right back to Abbotsford to play a whole bunch. Like that is a legitimate option to keep him around the team, maybe even practicing with the team in between, but also keep him playing because as impressive as he's been, and there's still work to do, there's still things in his game that well, they've improved, need to improve further. Um, he needs to play. Uh, again, we all look at, you know, I, I was the one who yelled louder than anyone about how brutal the DiPietro situation was in terms of lost opportunity to start during the pandemic. Artur Silovs was not much better, right? Like last year was almost a completely wasted season for him in terms of actually getting game action. You know, the experience required to connect the dots. Um, hockey is a game of patterns, not shots, and, and it takes experience to connect those patterns and read those patterns. And he needs more of it. And this is where the organization deserves credit for bringing the farm team to Abbotsford. Because this wouldn't have even been an option when it was in Utica. But it is now. I'm not sure you do it next year or it's the year after that. But I've always said with goalies, as long as you have the option to move them back and forth without waivers, use it as best you can. Uh, It's never a good idea to bring them up too early, especially if they're sitting. And then by the time you do need them to go down, they've been around so long they have to clear. So... Um, I, I, I think, I don't know which way they'll go, but it's a unique opportunity afforded them to have more nights like Tuesday night next season for Artur Silov, and it's because the organization has invested in having their farm team just down the road. Uh, in Edmonton, uh, looking outside of Vancouver, when are they going to make the full-time switch to Stuart Skinner? Have they not already? I guess, yeah, I suppose so. Pretty much. 
I hate to say this, but pretty much the day Mark Spector wrote that, that Jack Campbell's now the number one again. Like, has it been since that article came out that, that the bottom has fallen out on Jack Campbell? Pretty like four much, Four yeah. more and <laughs> six starts, and I'm just teasing on spec. But, um, yeah, listen, uh, there were all kinds of red flags about that signing. Uh, the guy had never been better than 30th in adjusted save percentage, even when his raw numbers were gaudy with the Leafs. That was the reality. There was wild swings uh, in performance last year in Toronto. There was a six-week stretch where there was nobody worse than the NHL. Uh, he just plays a game with a lot of moving parts, a lot of reliance on timing, a lot of reliance on rhythm, and I think above all else, a lot of reliance on confidence. His game is not rooted in technique. It is rooted in feel. It is rooted in feeling good about himself. And you add in the pressures of being a number one in a Canadian market, because, yeah, he, he took over the number one job in Toronto, but he never went in with a big ticket expected to be the savior for a playoff team. Like, that was never, like, that's another lay of pressure that Jack Campbell's never had to deal with as a goalie who has struggled, I would argue, as much between the years as between the pipes throughout his career. And because he's such a good guy and because he cares so much, you really hope that he's going to figure it out. But when you watch his game and you break it down, like, there aren't a ton of differences between how he plays when he's feeling good and how he plays when he's feeling bad other than more pucks go in. And the one, the one thing I will say is I've heard a lot of talk about him looking small. He does have a tendency, and he has of late, to not fight for sight lines and, 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 and sort of through screens and traffic um, near the top of his crease. He is sinking. He's never been the biggest goalie. He's never worn a big chest protector. He's never presented large. And now he's retreating. He's looking small because he's retreating positionally deeper in the crease. But as he backs in... He narrows his butterfly, his weight goes onto his heels, and as soon as you do that, when you drop, you tend to sink your butt onto the back of your skates almost. You sit down a little bit when you drop into your butterfly. You're not tall on the thighs. Delays your, your post-save recovery movement and also just accentuates that he-looks-small mentality or he-looks-small mindset that we're seeing and hearing from everybody who watches him play in Edmonton. So um, the question... And this is the toughest part for the Oilers because um, Skinner's running below expected as well. Here's the reality. They're also kind of like the Leafs. Everybody thinks it's all about poor defense, but it hasn't been, hasn't been this year, hasn't been four years in Toronto. That's a pretty goalie-friendly environment right now. Skinner's running slightly below expected, has no playoff experience in the National Hockey League level. Campbell is trending towards bottom five in the National Hockey League right now. And the catch-22 with Jack Campbell is – he's almost guaranteed not going to find his way out of it unless he gets a chance to play his way out of it. He's never been a once-every-two-weeks guy. He's been a need-two-weeks-straight, and I don't see where the Oilers find the runway to give him that opportunity, which means the Edmonton Oilers are going to be running with Stuart Skinner, who's been, like for the most part, good adjusted numbers aside. Like What he's done in his rookie season is impressive, but, man, is that a lot to put on the plate of a first-year NHLer, uh, especially come playoff time. Woodley, awesome stuff as always, man, and uh, we're out of time, but I look forward to seeing you at the rink later on and reading your latest at NHL.com and all the great work you do with an in-goal mag and chatting with you next week about some of the things we didn't get to this week with you. Yeah, are you on TV tonight, Zach? No, I'm chilling. I'm chilling. Okay, so I'm that's just doing Every time you're on TV, like that suit game, like you just put us all to shame up there, so now I'm feeling <laughs> a little, like, I'm, you know, like... 
my Jack Campbell, like I'm going to feel a little better about myself tonight because that's not rolling and they're looking like two million bucks, just his normal one million. So <laughs> thanks, Seth. The rest of us appreciate it. <laughs> thanks, Kevin. You're always looking sharp, though, man. Don't play yourself short. Appreciate it, man. <laughs> thanks, boys. Uh, you got it. That's Kevin Woodley from In Gold Mag and NHL.com. Uh, breaking down the goaltending and also the environment the Canucks play in. Some good thoughts. We'll break some of that down uh, as the show goes on. We'll talk more about that, especially in pregame. But we're going to turn our sights to prospects and overrated, underrated coming up next hour right here on Canucks Central.